Amen. So just in case you don't know it, for the full house that we have today, the song says um, that we are grateful. We are grateful. Um, and certainly during this year, there are increasing reasons why it's difficult for us to remain grateful. But we are, in fact, grateful. We are grateful for the goodness of who God is. We know that it is often difficult, especially with recent events, to remember that um, God is good, but we also must know that God is sovereign, God is in control, and that there is nothing that happens in the life of, of us or, or God's people that is out of his control. So the comfort that we find is not that we are in control, but it is that we don't know what's going on, that we are not in control, and that it is Jesus Christ who is sovereignly in control. And so when we sing a song like that or we hear a song like that, a rendition that says grateful, we are singing our testimony, which is that we are grateful. Certainly we are grateful to be back here in the house of the Lord. Um, it's just another opportunity for us to worship together, those of us who are here in person, those of us who have found it very convenient to watch online. Um, we're just grateful for, for our being able to gather together um, it is becoming as well increasingly difficult to gather together this way, but we are grateful that we are able to. So, as you know, we have been walking through, working through the book of Acts, and we're going to continue our journey today. So last week we looked at the life of Paul, and as we looked at the life of Paul, we looked at how God changed Paul, but we also looked at how God even changes us over time, which we described last week as the process of sanctification. So today what we want to do is we want to look back and look at what happens in the life of Paul after God changes his life. One of the most important things that happens in the life of any believer is when God changes us, we go from just being changed to also being sent. We go from being merely changed by God to being sent by God in order to go the course of our life and make disciples out of the people that we come in contact with. Prior to changing, the very life of Paul was defined by his desire to steal and destroy and kill the faith, to kill Christianity. His life is defined by his very hatred of what God was represented of most. He hated who Jesus Christ was. But in the moment that God changes him, not only does he change who he is, but he changes the entirety of the course that his life was on. And because of that, he goes from that moment, from just being changed to what will epitomize today's sermon, and that is that he was sent he was sent, and that is why today's sermon is simply called Sent. For every one of us who has been changed by God, we have been called to be sent by God as well. Now, this has forever been the pattern of conversion. When Jesus changed his first disciples, he told them that he was sending them in the midst of wolves, but as sheep. So the overall nature of our salvation at its core is that our salvation is evangelistic. 
Salvation is not just for those of us who want to ride the wave of our faith until Jesus Christ returns. But God saves us not by works, but he saves us unto good works. In other words, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but it is a faith that must not remain alone. We're going to work again from Acts, but in order to get good chronology, we're going to go back before, after Acts rather, and look at Paul describe some of the things that happens, and that's going to lead us up to our Acts text. So we're not going to begin today in Acts, but rather we're going to begin today in Galatians and then fill in the gaps between what's happening in our Acts text. So go with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 1. Verse 11, Galatians chapter one, verse 11. This is Paul writing. And remember, Galatians is a little bit of an autobiography by Paul as he's giving information about how his life has led up to conversion. He's giving information about the toils and the struggles that he goes through. And he's even giving information about some of the interactions he has with other disciples. So this is going to be important background for us to understand what his life actually looked like. Galatians 1 and 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now, In his writing, Paul is describing what happens as he was commissioned by God to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he begins by noting that when God called him, the revelation of the gospel that God had made him responsible for was not given to him by any man. Now, Paul had been commissioned by God specifically to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and get it to the Gentiles of which we are all Gentiles, those who are outside of the Jewish faith and ethnicity. God, as Paul described, had sanctified him. 
He had set him apart singularly for this purpose and this purpose alone, which is to get the gospel to the Gentiles who otherwise would not have been able to even comprehend the gospel. Now, Paul describes being set apart as something that happens in accordance to what God was calling him to be. Now, he says he makes it very clear here. I was set apart by God before I was born. Now, this is such a key component to us understanding the seriousness of how God has saved us all and what he has saved us unto. Paul again reemphasizes this for us in Romans 8 and 29 when he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That word foreknew, I've mentioned this before, is where we literally get our word prognosis from. You make a prognosis based on what you know. He is able to make this prognosis based on what he already knows. He knows according to the foreknowledge of God. It says that he also predestined, he predestined, that's a word that people struggle with, he predestined to be conformed, to be sanctified, to be shaped, to be molded into the very image of his son, in order that what? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then he gives us a pattern. I want you to see this pattern very clearly. And those whom he predestined, so those whom he had already foreknown, those whom he had already set apart, those whom he had already sanctified, he had already predestined them. Guess what he had already done? He had already called them. For those of us who have already been set apart, we have already been called unto the purposes of God. But not only that, those whom he had already called, what did he already do? Bible says that he had already justified them. What is justification? Justification is the process by which God declares us to be righteous. We are, in fact, not righteous, but God treats us who are guilty as if we are innocent. But I like what Paul is doing here. He says that he has justified us and in him justifying us, he is making a point that what happened in eternity past has already happened. If you are ever going to be a Christian at any point in your life, God has already set you apart for the work of God. He has already sanctified you to be a Christian. In other words, there is never a time, even though you may have been apart from God, that you're really apart from God. That is according to the sovereign knowledge. He declared you righteous at the same time that he was slaining the Lamb of God. And when does the Bible say that he was slain? The Bible says that he is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God did not wait around for you to come into the knowledge of truth to set you apart. He set you apart before you were even thought of in the womb of your mother. In the same way, he had set Paul apart. He has set us apart. So he says that we have been set apart on the basis of the foreknowledge of God because he predestined us. Because he predestined us, he had already called us. Because he had already called us, he had already declared us righteous. That is justified us. And we are already glorified. 
Now, the glorification, everything else that he's describing is something that has already happened in a part in accordance with our salvation. But here, the glorification that will come, he is speaking in past tense, though it has yet happened for us. We will be glorified, but Paul speaks as if we have already been glorified. Because what Jesus Christ has already done has already been done, which is why on the cross he declares to the last I paid in full, it is finished. Which means everything that we need to be was done and completed and finished on the cross. When God called all of us to saving faith, please understand this, he did so prior to our own existence. He did so before we had any clue that we would ever be anything in the first place. God had already set those of us who believe apart according to his foreknowledge. He does not wait around to see who we are or who we will become, but he chooses us based on his purpose of election, not based on works. You don't believe me? He says it in Romans 9. Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. Before either one of them have been born or did any good works, I chose Jacob over Esau. Why does Paul say that he did it? In Romans 9, he says, so that the purpose of election might continue so that it will not be based on any works. God saves us. We don't save ourselves. God sets us apart. And yes, you are understanding what it says. God chooses to save some people. We saw it last week. He resisted the will of Paul. He overcame the will of Paul in order to save him. God saves some people, and there are some people that he doesn't save. Now, the basis of them not being saved is because of their own rejection of the truth. But make no doubt about it. Any of us who is saved, we are saved because of God, not because of ourselves. He totally removes any ability on our part to say that we are the responsible parties for our salvation. We are called because of the goodness of God, not because of the goodness of man. If man had any iota of goodness in him, man would then not need the savior that they would be able to save themselves for. If there was any goodness in me at all, I don't need Jesus Christ. But the fact of the matter is, is until we come into saving faith, there is no goodness. Paul says that in my flesh, there is no good thing that dwells in it. Not one thing. So. That's the first part of what Paul is referring to, that God, long before his birth, had set him apart for his salvation. That's the first thing. But he's also referring to the fact that God had also set him apart for his service. God had not only set him and us apart just to be saved, but he sets us apart to be used by God as well. And God in his own timing says that he was pleased to reveal Jesus Christ to Paul. 
There was never a moment that Paul was outside of God's will, even when he was trying to destroy the faith. I know we talk about being outside of the will of God, but there is not one of us who can escape the will of God. We are never outside of the will of God, because if one of us can escape the will of God, then we all can escape the will of God. And if we can escape God's will, God is not sovereign. God is not in control. He is just allowing things to happen. But no, that's not what the Bible says about God. The Bible says that God is responsible for everything. Everything that happens, the calamity, Psalm says, God is responsible for. When it rains, whether you're just or unjust, the Bible says that it is God who causes it to happen. So even when Paul was out persecuting Christians and dragging them from the places that they were at to bring them to Jerusalem and beat them and abuse them, his name was already in the Lamb's Book of Life. Even when he didn't want to be in the Lamb's Book of Life. See, what I'm trying to paint is this beautiful picture of God's faithfulness, but also why Paul said we don't judge anything or anybody before it's time until Jesus Christ comes back and judges. Because we only see in part, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but it's God who sees and knows all. Which means we better be careful about the people who we say they'll never get it. They've been condemned to hell because if you can't condemn them to hell, don't you assume that God has? Because the reality is, is that there there was a point in all of our lives, all of us who claim to be believers, that we were on the same trajectory. But God in his sovereignty and in his goodness preserved us and revealed his son to us. Isn't that beautiful? That's the beautiful thing about who God is. This is the infinite wisdom of God, but it is the foolishness of man. Can you imagine that as God was shaping Paul and he had given Paul such fervor, such wisdom and such intellect, and even when Paul was using those things, to destroy the very faith of God, that God was going to take the things that he had gifted Paul and use those things to the glory of God to draw men and women who otherwise wouldn't believe. The truth of God's sovereignty is that he's the one who's holding this whole operation together. It means that We may have some family members, some friends, some loved ones who are already in the care of God. Though it appears that they're outside of his will. And I will tell you this. You'll never feel good about not sharing the gospel. Because that one family member that that comes to save in faith that you think would never come to save in faith. And when they do and we've all been there, we've had to accept the responsibility that I did nothing. To share the gospel with you, I didn't sow a seed, I didn't water anything. I mocked you and ridiculed you and condemned you in a way that God had not. 
And we would have thanked the glory of God that despite our judgment, that he can save whomever he wants to save. Now, as Paul goes on, he is explaining the way that he was giving the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says that he receives direct revelation from the mouth of God himself. No other man or outside influence stepped in or manipulated this truth that he had, but rather he received this revelation from God. That is what it means, by the way, to be an apostle. That's why there are no more living, because the last apostle that we had that was living was John. He was the last one to receive direct revelation from God. And so this is why Paul justifies that he is an apostle, because he saw the risen Lord and he received direct revelation. Now, what was that revelation? Jesus proclaimed, y'all may remember this, all throughout his ministry, Jesus proclaimed that he had come to save his own kinsmen, the lost sheep of Israel first. He made the point that he wanted to come and judge rebellious Israel to be the point of their reconciliation back into right relationship with God. Now, this is why anytime, and be clear, you hear the term backslider, in the Bible, it's not talking about us people. It's talking about Israel because only Israel can backslide because of their chosenness and their generation, which is why when God says that he's in the Old Testament married to whom? The backslider. Who is he married to? He's married to Israel. So when Jesus says that he came to the lost sheep of Israel first, it is to reconcile Israel back to God. But what was Paul's purpose? Paul was to reconcile the Gentiles to God. That was the purpose. That was the revelation. The revelation is that it is no longer those who call themselves Israelites or those who are the Jews who are God's chosen people. But it is those of us who have all been born according not to the flesh, but according to the promise. Now, what promise is that? That is the same promise that God made to Abraham that the Jews thought was just for them. When he promises and he makes an everlasting covenant and he says that you will be my people, he is saying that not just to the Jews, but he's saying that to all of us who believe. Now I want to show you something. The purpose... And the, the, the making of the salvation of Abraham, the declaration of Abraham's salvation, had nothing to do with him obeying the law. How do we know that? There was no law. In fact, it had nothing to do with him being circumcised. How do we know that? Because the Bible says that it was counted to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. Which means there was nothing that Abraham did in order to receive the righteousness of God. If you don't understand that through Abraham, God was painting the picture of salvation for all of us because as it was credited to his account, he believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. What do we do? We believe in the saving death of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross is credited to our account. 
That's the beauty of the gospel. And that is the revelation that Paul has. That's why whenever you see Paul in the Bible, he does it quite often. He says he talks about the mysteries of God. A mystery is something that happens in the Old Testament. But the truth of it is revealed to us in the New Testament. And God uses Paul primarily to be the conduit for that revelation. So you do not have to be born as a Jew, but you have to be born again as a believer. What Jesus Christ did was for all of us, all of us who were outside of the family of God, including the Jews, he has adopted us into the family and that God was bestowing on us a covenant that he had not bestowed on them. And it is a covenant that says that we are eternally secure in God. We have been grafted into the family. That is why Paul says that we receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Because we were born outside of the family. But he's drawn us in. Nobody was preaching this before Paul. Because nobody else understood it. This revelation was reserved for Paul and Paul alone. Now, for three years, he says that he's in Arabia and he's receiving this revelation. Some of you have probably never seen this about the life of Paul, but after Paul gets converted, let me paint the picture for you. So Paul gets converted. Paul goes down to the house of Ananias after being blind for three days. Ananias prays for him. He lays hands on him. His sight is restored. What does Paul then do? Paul then, which we don't see here because Luke is not trying to pattern the biography of Paul. Paul then goes away to Arabia for three years. And essentially, he's in a cave for three years, receiving this revelation of truth from God. And he says, while I was there, I saw no other apostle. He said, in fact, the only time I saw another apostle was after three years I had been in Arabia. I came down and I spent two weeks with Peter. And the only other person I saw was James, the Lord's brother. And he says, I tell the truth and I do not lie because everything that you are hearing me say is fright is straight from God. But why does he go to Peter and why does he go to James? Because he goes to them, those who were already apostles. He takes the revelation and he vets it. So he makes sure that I haven't just been having delusions of grandeur. I wasn't in a cave having hallucinations, eating the wrong kind of mushrooms. He takes that. He goes right to Peter. He goes right to James. And they confirm that what he was saying was the truth of the gospel. And then after that, he's going to go to Barnabas. And Barnabas as well is going to give him a commendation and receive him as a brother and confirm that what he received was absolutely from God. Everything that Paul had been up to this moment was preparing him to submit himself to the calling of God. The exact same thing happens in the life of David. David is a little shepherd boy who's out tending to sheep who are the dumbest creatures in the world. Literally. And he's tending them and taking care of them. And as he's doing it, we always think that God was preparing him to fight Goliath. God was preparing him to be king. 
before he had ever come into the calling, the service that God had set him apart for from the time of his youth. God was training him and preparing him for his service. What we learn about God, which is which should be applicable to all of us, is that in his sovereignty and in his goodness, he was qualifying us for the call before we knew that there was a call that would ever be made. Isn't that amazing? That before we knew we had a purpose, that we had any usefulness to God, God was honing us and shaping us and molding us and preparing us for his service. But not only does he qualify us, though, he prepares us for the call. And that's the same thing he did for Paul in Arabia for three years. Every one of us who has been called to saving faith has been called to put that faith to work. It is not a faith that sits down and, as I said, remains alone. We have been called to be the disciples who take the gospel and share it as agents of change. We have all been called to go into the darkest places in this world with the flame of the truth of the gospel burning deep inside of our hearts, hoping that it will light up this dark world and change the wicked hearts of men. When God chose us specifically for this call before the foundation of the world, he was qualifying us and preparing us to do what? To be sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And if you don't think that that requires preparation, then you're wrong. I notice often that there are many men who claim to be preachers and teachers who are sent from God. They claim to know the gospel. They claim to preach the gospel. But for them, there was no preparation process. I remember last summer I sat across a table from a young man. I'm young, but he's young, too, who claimed to be, you know, a preacher. And I told him, share with me the gospel. To my astoundment, he couldn't share the gospel. He didn't know the gospel. All he knew is that he wanted to preach and he wanted to be sent by God, but never sat down and had an opportunity to be prepared for the calling and the service that he claimed God was calling him to. It is the unfortunate reality that in many pulpits, not only do we have people who were never prepared for the call, we have people who are unqualified for the call. Now, I don't mean that in order to be prepared for the call and qualified for the call, you have to go to seminary like myself and be trained. Not everybody has to go to seminary. And God is using some magnificent men in his pulpit who never had to go to school. But what did they do? They sat down and they studied the word of God. They read the word of God. They fellowship with people who knew the word of God. And when God was pleased to reveal himself to them in his call, he let them go out. Anybody who thinks that they are beyond preparing for the service of which God has called us to, you're an arrogant liar who is deceiving yourself. That's the preparation process. But there are too many of us who feel like just because we think we're called that we can just go out. 
It reminds me of the seven sons of Sceva when they thought because they had been converted that they could do the same work as the apostles. And they went out and they tried to cast these demons out. And what happens? They had not been prepared for that service, probably not even called for that service. And as they try to witness to these men and get these demons out, the demons say this. Jesus, we know. And Paul, we recognize. Who are you? All of us who claim to be believers and claim to want to be used by God must know enough about the God that we want to be used by. And this is not just for us. This is everybody that God used. We see it happen in the life of Moses. We see it happen in the life of Joseph, in the life of Jacob. And we see it here in the life of Paul. God prepares us for the service that he has called us to. So Paul is away for three years being taught the gospel and this revelation. And then he went to Jerusalem with Peter for two weeks. Now, why is all this background so important? Because it shows us what the sent life looks like. And this is the life of all of us who claims to be used by God. And so now that we have the background and the context, that now brings us to Acts 9 and 19, back in Acts. So, well, wow, you had to give us a lot of context. Of course I did. Because it's this big gap of stuff happening that we don't see happening. It looks like Paul gets saved and goes straight into synagogues. And that's not what happens. Acts 9 and 19, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, we have all the context here for this text. For some days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. That's true. But when we read this, we need to know that this is after he has been in Arabia for three years. Paul doesn't just people go from persecutor to preacher, but God prepared him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So when we see him come back here and start teaching in the synagogue, that is after he had been trained, that is after he had been honed, and that is after the truth that he had received had been vetted by people who he knew knew God. The effectiveness of his ministry is in that he was sent by God for the purpose of God. In that same way, all of us who have been called and set apart to salvation by God must also realize that the calling is to go make more disciples. How are we honing the call? If we had to go out right now and share 
since we have been converted, do we know enough to actually share our faith? Do we actually know enough that if a person asks us a question that is difficult, are we fulfilling what scripture says, which it says being ready to give an answer? Do we actually know enough? One of the things I'm planning on doing for at the school, but also here at the church, is, is creating a spiritual wellness survey. Because one of the things that I'm realizing more and more is that the reason there are not disciples being made is because there are not disciples who actually know enough about Jesus Christ to make disciples. We're not spending enough time in the word. We're not honing what we know about God. We're only spiritual when we come to church and we're having a spiritual discussion. But there's no relationship outside of that. But yet we all want to be used by God. Yes, you have been called. But have you acknowledged that you've been sent? Being sent out, making disciples is where you will have the most value in your walk with Christ. Leading people to Christ and all these false teachers who talk about purpose and purpose and purpose, that's the only thing that'll give you purpose. Is when you see a person who was on the same trajectory that you were on because of the revelation of the knowledge of the gospel and they get plucked from eternal damnation to eternal bliss with God. Nothing will give your life more fulfillment than that. And we know because the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices when one comes into saving faith. When Jesus Christ says to go out, he says that the harvest is plentiful. You'll never have a problem with the harvest. There'll always be people who need to know the Lord. You know what he says is not plentiful? It's the laborers. It's the laborers. And he's not even just talking about people who claim to be Christians. He's talking about people who are willing to go out. If you don't understand what it took to harvest wheat back then, to go and do the work to reap. There are not enough people who are faithful enough to commit ourselves to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be abused, to be persecuted for the sake of the truth. In a world where everybody wants to sit down, my question is, will you go? Will you take the gospel and share with people who need to hear it? Paul went to the synagogues, the Bible says, and he proclaimed Jesus saying that he is the son of God. Now, when the people heard this, the Bible says they were astonished. They weren't astonished about about what he was saying. They were astonished at who was saying it. Because they knew that if Jesus Christ had changed Paul, he could change anybody. That should be our testimony. We, we weren't perfect people. We aren't perfect people. 
But if we don't tell people about how wretched we were when we came to faith, then they'll always think salvation is impossible. I was listening to a sermon this week as I closed, and um, in it, this guy said there was this Scottish um, expositor who was teaching a, a class at the Master Seminary with John MacArthur as the chancellor, and he said, you know, do we have to go to the law whenever we're trying to witness to people? Do we have to go to the law to bring condemnation? Do we have to go to the Ten Commandments? And he said, you know, the idea of people understanding that they have sinned against the law and violated the commandments of God is very important. He says, but something else spoke to me. And he was watching the hunchback of Notre Dame. And Quasimodo said something, which is remarkable, which is this. You know, the whole point of the movie is that people tell him he's hideous, but he doesn't see his own, how ugly he is. But he says, it wasn't until I saw the beauty of Esmeralda that I knew how ugly I was. And so what he said here is, it's not until we show people the beauty of Jesus Christ the holiness of Jesus Christ, the perfection, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the sinlessness of that lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, that they will see how hideous their own sins are. And so, my prayer is that through the myriad obstacles that we face, look, we got people who understandably, are not coming back to church right now. They're afraid. They're afraid of the virus. They're afraid of what may happen. We have restrictions in places like California where every Sunday that John MacArthur meets at his church, they get a $1,000 fine. The last thing we want to do is contribute to the forces that are trying to stop the gospel from going forward. And so as we close... As I said earlier, in a world of believers that just want to sit down and rest on their laurels, gain their wealth, their acclaim, their popularity, their notoriety, and just wait until Jesus comes back, will you go out and be active in your faith, not passive, not somebody came to you and asked you about Jesus, but actively going out and witnessing the people. I know you've been changed, but have you been sent? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we shared together. Lord, we thank you that even as um, there are many people who who have joined, decided today to join on, online and not be present with us, God, that, one, we thank you that you are giving us all avenues. But, Lord, we do pray that, that you will take away the fear that we have about what's going on. God, you are sovereign and you are in control, and even in the midst of this, we trust you. God, we pray that as we have learned in the word today that you have called us and you have sent us out God as sheep in the midst of wolves that 
God, you will hone our call, that you will protect us, that you will deliver us, that you will guide us, that you will guard us, but that you will give us the fire, that you will ignite us to go out and share, that we will realize that we haven't just been called, we haven't just been changed, but we have been sent out into this world to make disciples, God. Lord, that is what brings us the most fulfillment in our walk with you. Lord, my prayer is that you will reignite us in the midst of a world that tells us to stay home, be safe. God, that we will hold up the truth that for us to live is Christ, but for us to die is gain. That we trust you. God, if there's anybody who heard today's sermon who doesn't know you, who doesn't realize that they've also been sent out. God, that this will be the day they come in a saving faith. Lord, for those of us who are here, I pray that this has been a good reminder for us of our purpose. And the only thing that gives us purpose is to go out and be sent by you. It is in the master's name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.